It is important and refreshing to receive a journal like Sources. I rely on Sources for a deeply informed and well-curated collection of essays responding to current events and issues in contemporary Jewish life. Hi, I'm Claire Sufrin, editor of Sources, a journal of Jewish ideas. We get in-depth information from noted scholars, often in dialogue with one another, which is not to say always in agreement. In the newly released spring issue, scholars examine the theme of Jewish life tomorrow, reimagining key Jewish concepts for the present and future. Read, reflect, and subscribe to the award-winning journal at sourcesjournal.org. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Identity Crisis, a show about news and ideas from the Shalom Hartman Institute. I'm Yehuda Kurtzer, president of Shalom Hartman Institute North America. We're recording on Friday, October 9th, 2020, actually on Hoshana Rabbah, probably the most theologically significant random day on the Jewish calendar, and definitely the longest prayer services on any day that's not a Shabbat or a holiday. And actually, it's thematically appropriate for what we want to talk about today, which is the big, great prayer episode. The immediate prompt that got us talking about prayer today was the president getting ill with COVID-19. And the question that was starting to emerge kind of actually across the board for Jews going to shul uh, and Jews who are accustomed to saying prayers on behalf of those who are ill, which was, do Jews who, who find the president's politics personally problematic pray for the president? There was actually a video that went around with the chief rabbi of the Kotel saying a special Misha Berach prayer for the president of the United States and actually using the president's father's name, Fred, perhaps so he didn't have to say son of Mary. That was kind of interesting and strange. And certainly in progressive circles, a resistance to that idea of you pray for the president and it raises a whole bunch of theological and political questions. I guess I'm, I'm a little bit interested probing more today the theological and religious questions than the partisan political ones. But there are actually a lot of other prompts around prayer that we want to talk about, including the challenge that many of us have faced of the question of prayer throughout this pandemic. Many of us belong to, and we'll talk to two leaders on this call, uh, people who lead religious communities and have struggled with what it means to lead religious communities during this time, to observe the high holidays, times of prayer without our traditional prayer communities, the proximity that we are all facing to illness and death right now, and the question of prayer around that. And then we'll get into this question of what does it mean to pray for America and pray for the president. So to discuss all of this, I'm really excited to be joined by Rabbi Sharon Browse, the founder and spiritual leader of IKAR in Los Angeles, by Rabbi Eli Confer, president and CEO of the Hadar Institute. There's a lot to be said about both of them, great biographies, but I'll just say that they are both leading lights of American Jewish spiritual leadership. And they're also friends, and it feels a little bit like getting the band back together. So first of all, uh, Sharon uh, and Eli, thank you for joining us here today on Identity Crisis. So let's start with a little bit of an icebreaker. So first of all, I'd love to hear from both of you what your prayer life has been like for the past six months. What's it been like to move from religious community? I know both of you very well. As leaders of religious community, you are both shul people. Not everybody is shul people, but you're both shul people. What's your prayer life been? Uh, and what have been the, the highs and lows throughout this? I want to start with you, Sharon. Yes, I'm shul people, <laughs> very much so. My spiritual life comes alive when I'm in a crowd packed with hundreds or even thousands of people, and we're all singing and crying and dancing together. And it's hard for me. Praying alone in my house is a challenge, and I feel a great sense of loss. I feel a loss of harmony, actually. It's one of the things that hurts my heart um, most about this time. There's something that happens when our voices blend together and the kind of sacred chemistry 
of being in a space with people who are grieving and people who are celebrating and people who are yearning and people who are facing existential confusion and all of that mixes into this kind of holy brew and we just haven't been able to put voices together in that way and I miss it I miss it desperately so it's it's challenging and I've also found with great surprise that the efforts that we've made to bring people together even through technology have been surprisingly moving for me in terms of creating a kind of alternative version of communal prayer. And at the High Holy Days, we really um, invested a tremendous amount of time and resources to try to figure out how we could create some kind of harmony, blending of voices. And I feel that those efforts have been incredibly moving and really important for my soul. So I hunger and I'm also very, very grateful for the moments when we've been able to achieve that kind of connection. Yeah, what about you, Ellie? I know I got a little window into this because Ellie and I had the unique pleasure of actually leading high holiday services together, which I think has never happened before. Probably won't happen again, but it was in a backyard. So I was close to you in, in a little bit of prayer in this pandemic, but tell me a little bit about how your own prayer life is going. Yeah, well, first of all, I resonate with what Rabbi Sharon was saying about just wanting to be with other people and hearing the voices, Berov Am Hadrat Melech comes to mind so much these days. God is exalted and glorified only with the majority or many, many people. And we just haven't had that. I would say for me, one of the hardest things has been Shabbat davening in particular, just our family for so many weeks in a row. And it was just not particularly spiritually uplifting. I think the daily prayer for me for a long time, ever since I was a kid, davening in the morning has been something that I'm used to doing alone. So that actually felt fine. And in some ways you can be more creative, take sort of different risks when you're alone. But I think being apart for holidays and Shabbat was very difficult. And these bright moments, you know, having Yom Kippur with you, Yehuda, in a backyard tent with only 40 people, those were sort of bright spots in an otherwise dark time. And I would say, yeah, there were other opportunities that emerged because of these small minyanim that are starting to sort of pop up in the last few months. You know, my daughter got to read Torah on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, which is, you know, for a 12-year-old, just almost impossible to imagine because, you know, Jack's been reading Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur, you know, for the last 30 <laughs> years. So there were opportunities, but it's definitely been uh, a challenge. One of the earliest prayers that's mentioned in the Torah is the prayer for the sick. And in absence of communal prayer, we are also all surrounded by a tremendous amount of anxiety around illness and fragility as it relates towards death. So let me ask a religious phenomenology question. What do you think prayer for the sick is ultimately about? What do you believe happens when people talk about praying for those who are ill? When we say a Berach and Shul, when we mention people's names, there's so much to unpack here, but what do you think actually happens? Great. Well, just to highlight something that you said, that the word tefillah, um, lehit palel, it does come first in chapter 20 of Breshit when Avraham prays on behalf of Avimelech for his rifuah, for his healing. So actually the core of tefillah, you could argue, is about praying for the sick. Now it says in that pasuk, Vayitpalel Avraham Ela Elohim, Avraham prayed, or however you translate Vayitpalel, let's say for now, Avraham prayed to God, Vayitpalel Elohim and Avimelech, and Avimelech uh, was healed by God. God healed Avimelech. So at least in that model, there's a direct correlation between your prayers and the end result of someone being healed. And I think part of the 
motivation for people to pray, and certainly my motivation to pray for other people to be well, is a hope that God will, through whatever means, actually heal that person. You see these studies where, you know, people who know that people are praying for them, and even people who don't know that people are praying for them, actually heal faster than people who don't pray for them. So you can believe that or not. But there is, I think, sort of a kernel of if there's ever a prayer that you hope has an impact, a sort of direct correlation to what you're praying for, um, praying for the sick, I think, is one of them. Although it's obviously been road tested and it's not a perfect formula, I think there is an aspect of praying for the sick that does involve a hope that God will intervene and, and help heal them. I think secondly, you know, especially in these times, I know that when I've mentioned to people that I'm adding them to my personal list that I say in Rifainu in the Blessing for Healing in the Amida, they're impacted by that. And, you know, that is less about God healing them directly and more about raising the consciousness and for them to be comforted to know that someone's thinking about them on a daily basis and mentioning their name. So I think those are two aspects of the important parts of what it means to pray for someone's healing. I think about the Mishaberach and really all prayer in both a horizontal and a vertical fashion. This might be part of the reason why praying alone in my house is so challenging for me, even though I'm used to doing that every morning, but it's much less meaningful for me than Shabbat prayer when we're able to gather together and certainly the holidays, because the horizontal component is missing when I'm just alone in my house. And I really see the Mishaberach as emblematic of both of these aspects of prayer. It's both an opportunity for us to connect with each other about where our hearts are hurting, and also a chance for us to throw up to the heavens a desperate prayer for someone we love or for ourselves that they might be able to find some kind of healing and and asking for a kind of divine intervention in the world, even when that doesn't necessarily mesh with our theologies. And so we have a practice at Ikar that we've developed over the years for Misha Beirach, where the clergy and chaplains and social workers now, because as the community has grown, we don't have enough clergy to get to everybody, will fan out throughout the room and have just a moment with every single person who needs to offer Misha Beirach for somebody who's hurting. And the practice as it's developed over time is that I will approach somebody and then they'll tell me the name of the person and their relationship with that person. And then I repeat it back to them. And sometimes it takes three or four tries for me to get the name right because you can't hear it exactly right. And in that moment, something very holy is happening. And it's not because I believe that I have a deeper connection to God. I can access God's will in a way that that person couldn't alone. But that person who's aching is seen by another human being whose heart is open to their pain. And there is some healing that comes just from that alone. Even if there were no God, there would be healing that would come just from that moment alone. And then the vertical, which is I really do profoundly hope and believe that in some ways our honesty, our earnestness, our open-heartedness can in some way transform reality. And I don't know that I really understand the mechanics of how that works on a theological level. I don't think any of us does, and I don't necessarily need to, but I know that I want to believe that our prayers actually matter in some fundamental way. I also think there's something very powerful and important about human beings pushing up against the outer edge of our own power and ability to change things. And there's something that happens with the Misha Berach where we recognize that 
even our most fervent prayers will not necessarily save the life of a person who's hurting and will not necessarily take their pain away. And even still, we're called to ask what is within our power. We don't have the ability to control everything, but we can control some things. And so I remember years ago that a very well-known rabbi asked me about a mutual friend of ours who is really unwell and said, that he had been thinking a lot about him, asked how he was doing and said, I want you to know he's in my prayers every day. This person had recently told me he hadn't heard from that very well-known rabbi in several years. And I said to him, I'm glad you're praying for him every day. It wouldn't hurt if you picked up the phone and called him, right? You can't necessarily force God to heal him, but you can help him know he's not alone when he's hurting. And I, I feel in some ways pushing up against the outer limits of what we can control because some of this is in the realm of the mysterious in God's realm. It reminds us there's something about submitting to the awareness that we cannot control everything. And there's something about getting back on our feet afterwards and recognizing that there is something within our power. There is something that we can do to work toward our own and others healing. It's interesting. A couple of weeks ago, it was the first time I was back in shul. It was a small, socially distanced gathering of a bar mitzvah. And when they came for the time for the Mishaberach, uh, they said, oh, just say the name of the person you're praying for. And I mumbled the same name that I've said for years, my uncle. Uh, my uncle passed away in March, early in the pandemic. And so it was a rote thing to say his name. And I recognized a piece of what both of you alluded to. Ellie, you talked about the intercessory role. And Sharon, you alluded to the thing you don't fully understand, which is how it actually works. But both of you spoke passionately about the relationship that gets built between us and those who are praying for. And for me, like, I felt bad about saying my uncle's name then, knowing he had passed away. But I realized, like, there was something useful as a discipline of thinking about him in shul. But I want to ask the harder question, which is, what do we think actually happens? Because, and here's what comes back to where I started our conversation with the question of praying for the president. Most of us don't have a direct relationship with people in positions of political power, but I would suspect that a lot of liberal-leaning Jews have been saying Amisha Berach for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, or were, over the five times that she had cancer over the last uh, 30 years before she passed away. And certainly most American Jews don't have a close relationship to the President of the United States. So when Jews do say prayers on behalf of the government, and particular praying for the healing of public officials, to the extent that it's about establishing a relationship with that person, well, it doesn't really exist. So it obviously is about something else, which is, I really want this person. I really do wonder, should we be in that business? <laughs> should we leave political officials out of it altogether because we don't want to be in the business of praying for the ones we like and not praying for the ones we don't like? Or should those of us who like the president, not like the president, should we be praying and saying, you know what, I don't like the president's policies. I hope he loses the election. But I also think it's like the responsible thing to do as an American to pray for the president's health. I'm like taking away the relationship piece and wondering about if you really believe that praying actually helps to heal somebody, what does it mean to be in the business of praying for people on the political level? And I'm curious, Sharon, especially for you to respond first, because your community enacts both a religious community and in some ways a political community. I think that's part of the kind of holiness of the practice of the work that you're doing. So I'm wondering how you think about this, the work of praying for healing in the context of, of this kind of political climate. I'll tell you, I got a lot of questions the moment his COVID test came public about whether there was a theological framework to to refusing to pray for somebody's health when they're in a position like this or 
to actively praying for them to become either severely ill or to die. And these were all from good and decent people who all felt some measure of shame for asking the question, but there were many of them. Several of them colleagues, rabbinic colleagues, again, all of them good and righteous people. One rabbi actually articulated it to me in a way that I sat with for all of Yandif. I got his email on Friday before Shabbat and Sukkot began. And what he said was that he was concerned that if the president were to move through this illness very quickly, either because of the kinds of medications that he was able to access, which no other person on the planet could access, or because of the strength or because of some kind of divine intervention, who knows, he was able to get through this and it only minimally affected him. It was clear to him that this could lead to the deaths of another 100 or 200,000 Americans or more, because it would only reinforce that we should not take this virus seriously, which is a message that the president has been putting forward consistently for the past seven months. Whereas if the president were to get severely ill or even die from this illness, that many of those millions of followers would suddenly have to stop in their tracks and say, wait a minute, I need to wear a mask. I need to distance. I need to take this seriously. I don't want to politicize a public health issue anymore. And as a result, what he was asking for was actually not so much about the president himself, but was more about as religious leaders, is it okay for us to pray for the thing that we know will ultimately save hundreds of thousands of lives? And that is not an easy question to answer. I wanted to say as Jews, we don't pray for someone else to die, even an evil person. But of course, we pray all the time for terrible things to happen to evil people in our tradition. And I know Yehuda, you have strong feelings about this. We shouldn't be saying as Jews, dot, 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 in any case, because there are ways that in our Jewish tradition, we're across the spectrum on this one. So that's the challenge that I held for the past week. Not am I obligated to pray for this president's health, this president who has done so much to wreak havoc on this country, this president who has who began his his climb to office with overt racism that endangered the lives of of immigrants, of Mexicans, of Muslims, of black people, of brown people, this president who has endangered the lives of Jews in this country with a spike in anti-Semitism that's unlike what we've ever seen before. That's not that, that's not my core issue. The question is do we have the right to pray for somebody else to suffer if it will ultimately save the lives of many others? And I found myself in the last week, every time that question has come to me, turning my prayers instead to the three or four people in my community right now who are extremely ill and standing on the cusp between life and death and fervently praying for their health and for their healing, rather than sit in the place of kind of moral and theological conundrum about, do we pray for an evil person for whom every day that he continues to hold power, he is jeopardizing the lives of innocent people is that where I want to bring my heart to the Holy One? And the answer is that's not where I want to focus my prayers. I would rather focus on the people who actually desperately need our healing right now. But doesn't that collapse ends and means as it relates to prayer, right? Because in order to make that argument, you have to say, if I pray for the president's healing, then that is going to result in these X, Y, Z activities, which is possibly true. Although there is a universe, I don't know that we live in it, but there is a universe in which it would have been possible for the president to contract a virus that he had made light of over months and months, and then to say, you know what, 
I really had a life and death experience. And now I want to make available to everybody the type of healthcare that I had received. It's, there's a universe in which that's imaginable. And what that would mean is that to pray for the president's health is to pray for a better end for America, as opposed to I'm praying only in this limited sense. And the problem is that since we are accustomed to pray only for a person's healing, right? I need you to be out of this bout of cancer right now and not I'm praying for a long-term end, that that gets into our mind that praying on behalf of an evil person is actually praying for evil as opposed to thinking, get through this in order to be able to achieve something greater. And in fact, this is what I both wrote and what I actually prayed that Friday morning. I prayed that his brush with virus would open his heart and the hearts of those who work with him in this administration, this regime, in order to increase their sensitivity to the pain of illness and to the need for every single person to have really strong health care and not be scared that they aren't going to be able to pay their bills when they come home from the hospital. That's what I actually prayed for when it came to him. It's not that he should move through this quickly and easily. It's that his heart should be transformed by his encounter with this. But I do want to say, Sarna wrote this piece years ago about what does it mean to pray for the government. I'm sure you both are familiar with it and talks about the moment in American Jewish life, the prayer shifted from a prayer for the king or the president to the prayer for the government, because we understand that when the government is strong, that the Jewish people are more likely to be safe and protected. And so we pray for the welfare of the state. We don't pray for the necessarily for the individual who's at the head of the government just precisely because he sits at the head of that government. It's an amazing moment to reflect upon the freedom that we have as Jews in this country to even debate this question. The prayer for the government was probably instituted in some ways because of the external pressure that Jews felt that if they didn't praise the monarch, they would suffer the consequences. So even to get the questions that you were getting, Sharon, about, you know, well, am I allowed to pray for the downfall of this political leader? Just sort of points to this moment of, wow, so many Jews in history could never even conceive of having a public prayer that would be anything other than obsequious because the whole point of the prayer was to curry favor with a ruler who might otherwise do harm to Jews. It's also just an incredible shift you mentioned the Vlamal Shinim prayer, the prayer that we euphemistically call the blessing for the heretics, which is really a curse against heretics that we say every day in the Amida. It's not too long ago that like our students at Hadar could barely bring themselves to say that prayer out loud. They would whisper it because who could imagine ever saying anything bad about anyone? And who's to say there's such a thing as evil? And then the total 180 that happened where I saw on my Facebook feed some of our students just posting that prayer, like the day that the president was diagnosed, as if it was an obvious fulfillment of this bracha that I am now apparently saying full-throated in my Amida, where I'm praying for the downfall of who I term as evil people. Both the moment that we stand in as Jews in America and also the shift around our attitudes towards prayers that pray for some form of harm towards people we don't like. Or as you pointed out, if we're praying now for governments as opposed to people. So maybe Malchut Zadon is really the phrase that really rings true. It's the government of insolence as opposed to we're going to name names that we're really pushing to pray for its downfall and its uprooting 
I also think it's amazing how literal people got about prayers for healing right around this time. It's a metaphor until it becomes, well, actually, maybe I want this person either to get better or not to get better. And therefore, I have this tremendous power within me about whether he's going to get healed or not. So the moment that American Jews go literal on prayers is also just interesting to reflect on because we're able to be metaphoric until the moment where we aren't. <laughs> and this was not metaphoric. Yeah, I think from a religious phenomenology standpoint, that point is right on. Adam Seligman writes about sincerity and ritual. To what extent are you performing a ritual because you see yourself in a particular drama and therefore you're performing it? Or to what extent do you actually believe that the ritual action brings about a transformation in the world? And I think the whole question of the efficacy of prayer relies on that same dichotomy. If you really believe that you're praying for somebody to get better and you really don't want them to get better, then it's really hard to actually execute that prayer with a straight face. Whereas if what you think you're doing is, no, American Jews should be praying for the government, and despite the fact that I don't like this government, it's one of the things that we should be doing, that that's part of our vocabulary as this people, then I can, maybe I can change my intentionality. I heard a congregational rabbi the week that the president was attacking Colonel Vindman, I think, months ago, got up right before the prayer for the government. And he said, I just want to make clear that the prayer for the government includes the bureaucrats. I'm praying for the bureaucrats this week. And I really appreciated that because he was basically saying, I'm going to do the ritual. I'm going to say the prayer, but I can adjust my intentionality within that to focus my sincerity. And not necessarily like the original plot point that this was constructed for. It's not, it was for the czar and it's it, now it's for the president, but I'm actually using it to pray for the government itself. The idea of what we're praying for in that prayer for the government is so critical. And Sharon pointed out that it's shifted over time and I know people who walk out for that prayer or don't stand for that prayer. Actually, Sarda points out in that article that Americans in early revolutionary period started to sit for the prayer for the government because it was too obsequious to the king. And they were revolutionaries who were interested in showing something else. So that's how they sort of objected. But my thing is, I have a lot of focus right now for the prayer for the government since Trump was elected, because I feel like I want God to bestow wisdom and kindness, you know, making these people make the decisions that are coming from a place of godliness as opposed to somewhere else. I think that's a prayer that you can, there was a prayer for the country that was said in the 20s in a shoal in Long Island, where this rabbi Norman Salat said, talking about America, prevent it from losing its own soul. And he says, make our leaders conscious of the fact that to be mindful of any group only instead of all our inhabitants is to be guilty of nothing less than treason. So you can sort of shape the prayer for the government to say a little bit of, I want the government to be acting in the way that I think is godly. And that's what this prayer is about, which is a prayer I would not walk out for or sit down for. I would stand up and have a lot of focus around. I think that you're both pointing to another element of prayer that I think is worth exploring for us, which is, is prayer a going through the motions kind of workout to build muscle? Or are we praying because we mean it in this moment? And the Misha Berach is the prayer. The prayer for healing is the moment where the rubber hits the road most often. It's when you or your loved one is really unwell, that suddenly you find that you're shifting from, I'm doing my three mile run because that's what I need to do to stay in shape to, I really, really believe in this and this needs to work right now. I think for most Jews, when we pray, we're often in the place of like moving through the motions and doing the muscle stretching. 
And so it does make sense that this is suddenly the moment, Ellie, where you notice that your students are suddenly believing that their prayers might actually make a difference because in this sphere of the healing space, that's when we start to actually contemplate that kind of vertical relationship that's always in the background for prayer, I think, but rarely at the, at the forefront. Hi, my name is Jenny Notice-Liss, and I work for the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. With passions running high in the run-up to the U.S. presidential election, we at Hartman want to help you take a step back to ask the big questions that are facing the American Jewish community today as citizens and stakeholders in the American project. How do our Jewish and civic values intersect? What are our obligations as North American Jews? How should our voices be heard? On October 19th, our Hartman at Home programming will kick off with dozens of sessions on the key civic issues facing our communities today, including salons, panels, book talks, and deeper learning opportunities. Plus, we'll have 10 takes on the role of a citizen in a democracy, a daily 25-minute session with 10 different Hartman scholars. Join for one session or many as we add a Jewish lens to this critical moment in history. Go to www.shalomhartman.org to find out more. So let me take one other big topic that relates to prayer, which is earlier this summer with the racial justice protests in America and huge Jewish involvement in those protests. One of the lines that gets wheeled out over and over again is is Rabbi Heschel's Judaization or popularization of the Frederick Douglass idea that my feet were praying. And that protest is actually a form of prayer. And there's a really interesting divide between politically conservative leaning Jews who view that move as a politicization of Judaism versus I think liberal leaning Jews who say, no, no, I really mean it. <laughs> I really mean that the act of protest is like an act of prayer. It's exactly on this topic Topic that we're talking about because it relates to the question of sincerity. Can I express my prayerful ideas in the world through a different type of showing up that's not the Amida? And is that actually a religious action? Or am I actually compiling these two things together in order to give religious validation or justification to what I'm doing? I would love to just throw that in the mix here because it's so interesting for us as American Jews to have shuls shut down and at the same time to see this outburst of participation in the public square. So I guess I'd love to hear from both of you how you engage that question of the notion of feed our praying as real prayer in the context of this pandemic moment. I believe that prayer is fundamentally an act of protest. And I think what we learned from Hana is that that protest will take many different shapes and forms. Even when you consider Avraham standing before God and protesting against the the planned destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. That is an act of protest and that is an act of prayer. Hannah expressing her anguished heart as she did is an act of prayer. It's really fundamentally an act of protest, an act of prophetic judgment. And for some of us, we access that in shul on Shabbos morning, surrounded by many people and with a Sefer Torah, you know, in the ark. And for some of us, we experience that act of prophetic judgment, that act of sacred resistance when we are in the street translating our 
core values into a kind of stated vision of the world as we would like to see it. It's a protest against what is and an expression of our fierce desire for what could be. And one thing that I often think of that one of my rabbis said many years ago, because there was a protest planned on Shabbat and a lot of people in the community were saying, you know, but Heschel prayed with his feet. And my rabbi said, yeah, Heschel also prayed in Shul on Shabbos, and then he'd go pray with his feet on Sunday. And so it shouldn't necessarily be a one or the other choice that we're making between liturgical prayer, opening of the heart, and protest. And I think what's powerful about our tradition is that these, that really the marriage between these worlds, that we don't leave our sacred work to happen only inside the walls of the synagogue, and then go be a social justice activist uh, on Sunday after you've prayed on Saturday. But instead, what happens in the walls of the sanctuary is directly connected to the way that you comport yourself out on the street on Sunday morning. And those things fuel and feed one another. And so it's not that one is prayer and the other isn't. It's all prayer. It's all an act of sacred resistance against the world as it is in favor of a world in which human dignity is real, in which every single person is able to live with justice, with equity, with equality, in fairness. That That's the same conversation, but one is happening in a more internal way and one is happening more externally. Yeah. One of my favorite response to radio podcast episodes, which is the Hadar Institute podcast uh, hosted by uh, Rabbis Ethan Tucker and Anavi Killip, was on the question of what can I do in order to make possible showing up at a protest on Shabbat? And it's fine-tuned set of halachic questions. What can you do, what you can't do? But the overarching assumption is it's not Shabbat is the religious space and the protest is not the religious space. It's that this is how do I express my religious conviction in one framework, in ways that, that make demands of me that run counter to the instincts of a different religious framework. Ali, how does this sit with you, this whole question of, because it's striking to me that in the middle of a pandemic, where one of the dominant activities for Jews gets interrupted, which is traditional prayer in synagogues, Jews are actively participating in these protests using the very language and framework of prayer. So how does that, how do you relate to that question? Well, I just wanted to jump on what Sharon was saying about the biblical characters who connect protest and prayer. I think of Pinchas. You know, when the Talmud speaks about what is prayer, it says, Ein amida ela The definition of standing is the same definition of prayer, and they prove it from the actions of Pinchas, Vayamod Pinchas Vayifalel, from Psalm 104, where it describes Pinchas standing up by Yamod and intervening by Yifalel, which is the same root as Tfilah, but Pinchas, who was probably the original Jewish activist, you know, what he does is he looks out on the moral universe that he's confronting, he sees something he doesn't like, and he runs them through with a spear. Now, liberal Jews are not necessarily lining up to model Pinchas as their hero, but I think that the model of Pinchas of taking action as opposed to just sort of standing and saying words, um, which is the other half of that Gemara where Avraham is arguing against the destruction of the city of Sodom. And that's sort of his prayer. Pinchas's prayer is the action that happens. So I do think you could draw a straight line between action and prayer. For me personally, I think of prayer as an approaching of God. Actually, there's a nice tefillah that you say at the end of Hoshana Rabbah, as you mentioned, Yuda, that's today's prayer. And it talks about removing the iron wall between us and God that you say after you whack the aravot on the ground. And to me, I think that's really what prayer is about personally, that it's just moving to remove that iron wall that separates us from the divine. And sometimes that 
has to happen in the context of moving your feet. Like you actually have to go somewhere or do something in order to pull that wall back. But I agree also with Sharon that it's not a dichotomy that there's the shoal space and the active space and, you know, never the two shall meet. It's like the reason we read that Haftorah on Yom Kippur from Isaiah about feeding the hungry and clothing the naked is not so that nobody will go to shul next year. It's that you're supposed to intertwine the experience of being in shul with the charge of going out and doing something. So I think they are intertwined, even if I wouldn't necessarily say they're synonymous. Yeah, and there's a little bit of an ugly piece of this to the extent that some of the real ugliness that's going on in Brooklyn right now in Borough Park is actually consciously modeling itself after the racial justice protests and basically saying, if you're allowed to go out and protest for what you perceive to be your injustice on the basis of your primary commitments, our community is also going to protest when you tell us you can't come to shul. There is an accurate logic to that argument, <laughs> even though the expression of it is actually running counter to public health and is endangering journalists and, and a lot of terrible things. But it does kind of get us at the crux of, if I believe that to live in the world is to pray, and if I believe that to pray is to live in the world, then when I'm not able to do those things, there's something that's diminished about the human spirit. And for some Jews, that's going to look like one form of galvanized action in the pursuit of that. And for another community, Telling me I can't organize and come to shul together is going to be, uh, almost feels like a poison pill. On that point, the idea that prayer can only happen in community is not really a sort of fundamentally Jewish one. That is to say, like the model of the Amida is Daniel from the Bible, and he's praying alone in his attic. You mentioned, you know, praying with your feet. We learned from Rabbi Akiva that when he was alone, that's when he would do all these prostrations that would move him from one side of the room to the other, which he would never do in public. So I think the idea that it's sort of a zero-sum game of we pray in public or else we don't have a prayer life is missing the part of Judaism that always understood that there are moments when praying alone are appropriate and maybe even preferable. And certainly in a public health scare, one could draw on those. I am speaking as somebody who terribly misses the idea of being together with other people. But the idea that you would see this as the only way to pray, I think also sort of ignores some part of the Jewish canon around prayer. Yeah, let me ask you one last thing. I'm going to put you both in the spot and force you to put on your rabbi hats. But Earlier in the pandemic, in one of our earliest episodes on this show, so those of you who are new to the show, it's worth going back to this episode just to listen to the last five minutes. Uh, I had uh, Maga Siddiqui uh, and the Reverend Laura Everett. It was right around Pesach, Ramadan, and Easter basically coincided this year, and all of our religious communities were early in the process of having to figure out how to mark our liturgical years without the traditional forms of community that we had before. And I put them both on the spot and I said, can you, can you give us a prayer? And it was just, it was beautiful. And I know Jews were like a little more skittish around spontaneous prayer, but I do want to put you both in the spot and maybe just ask you to, to share with us a prayer directed at any of the things we've talked about to the ill, to our country, to those who are suffering under the weight of injustice. Can you give us a prayer that we'll do a little davening together on a podcast? I know that Sharon's prayer is going to be amazing. So I'm going to just introduce the idea of spontaneous prayer um, by saying that we often think that 
Jews can't pray spontaneously. And it's like, we have the Sidor, that's what we pray. And that may be actually true in practice, but the idea that prayer didn't include a spontaneous portion to it is totally foreign to the notion of how the rabbis understood prayer. They were arguing about where you say your spontaneous prayers at the beginning, the middle, or the end. But of course, you were going to pray spontaneously. Like, that is what prayer is. Yeah, I got some words that are going to scaffold it, but of course, I'm going to say something that's in my own heart. So I just want to say that there is a world in which we are now in the spontaneous prayer generation, meaning to generate something like we've never been before because of all the need for prayer in the world. And I just want to say that is the most traditional way of praying Jewishly. And we sort of come back to that. With that, I'm going to turn it over to Sharon to offer such a prayer. (laughs) (laughs) That's a cop out. (laughs) It's beautiful, beautiful. But I want your prayer too. I will say that spontaneous prayer, I know you didn't ask us to reflect on spontaneous prayer, but I'm following Ellie's lead for a moment, and then I will say a prayer with us, that I remember being in a hospital chaplaincy and somebody asked me to pray with her. This was an older woman who was dying, and she asked me to pray, and a wave of terror ran through my body because I did not have a C-door with me, and I... And I thought, like, how can I pray with her? I don't have the words. And she just took my hands and closed her eyes and we just prayed together. And it was, I realized I I was a fifth year rabbinical student. It was probably my first time ever praying, which is interesting because I prayed three times a day. So this is a muscle for Jews to grow. It's really important for us sometimes also to, to move away from the book and hear what we can hear from the heart. So I will say this. God created us with hearts that are capable of loving deeply and being loved deeply. And in this time when there are so many forces that are trying to block our hearts from really penetrating the depths of what a love-drenched world could look like, I pray that we all find the strength and the courage in the days ahead to lead with love, to lead with a sense of hope, a sense of possibility so that we can all merit inheriting the world that we dream of together, a world of justice, a world of fairness, and a world of love. I mean, for me, um, I think about spontaneous prayer in reference, especially as a shiach tibor, someone who sometimes leads davening, in reference to pauses. I like the liturgy. But I like pausing at various places and emphasizing different pieces. I think that's part of spontaneous prayer, too, is to actually listen that the liturgy has a lot in there. And if you choose to emphasize one piece or another, that's actually teasing something out. And for me this year, the prayer that I find summarizes the whole High Holiday davening is there's an Avinu Malkenu right at the end of the repetition of the Amida. It's like a three-line Avinu Malkenu that the prayer leader says, and it's like a laundry list of prevent all of these terrible things from happening in our society. And in previous years, I've always paused at the phrase Sinat Chinam, because that's the one baseless hatred. That's the one of all of this list that people are most capable themselves of preventing. (laughs) You know, a lot of the illnesses and terrible things in the world, you're praying that God keeps away from us. But it's like, well, are we going to take responsibility for this piece? And this year, emphasizing the language of Machala, of illness, of Magaifa, of plague, together with Sinat Chinam and recognizing that we may be somewhat powerless to prevent the plague, but that how we order our society, how we organize our society, and how we relate to one another is actually a part of how we're going to get all through all of this together. So with that, I want to thank you both, uh, Rabbi Eli Confer and Rabbi Sharon Brous, for being with us this week. And thanks to all of you for listening to our show. 
Identity Crisis is a product of the Shalom Hartman Institute. It was produced this week by Devin C. Kalman and edited by Alex Dillon. Our managing producer is Dan Friedman with music provided by SoCalled. To learn more about the Shalom Hartman Institute, visit us online, shalomhartman.org. We'd love to know what you think about the show. You can rate and review us on iTunes to help more people discover the show. And you can write to us at identitycrisis at shalomhartman.org. You can subscribe to our show in the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, SoundCloud, Audible, and everywhere else podcasts are available. See you next week, and thanks for listening.